Well, good evening, everyone. Please take the Bible that you were given on your way in, or if you've brought your own, take that one too, and turn with me to Mark chapter 13. If you were given a black church Bible on the way in, then I think you're looking for page 849. Yes, you are. 849, Mark chapter 13. I'm going to read the first 23 verses of Mark 13. And as you turn there, let me pray and ask the Lord for his help as we study these verses together. Father, as we listen carefully to your word this evening, please give us gospel ears to hear from the Lord of history, to listen carefully to his voice, to wait for him, and give us gospel hearts to respond in wonder, love, praise, and obedience to you. These things we ask for the sake of your glory, for the sake of our salvation, and in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 13 then, verse 1 through to 23. And as he, that's Jesus, came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be? And what will the sign be when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader, that's us this evening, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. 
Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas for women who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, I have told you all things beforehand. I had some fun this week looking online at historical predictions that were made very, very confidently, but in reality were wildly wide of the mark. So did you know that there was an American film producer in the 1940s, Daryl Zanuck, I think that's how you pronounce his name, who predicted that televisions were never, ever going to be a thing, citing that people will soon get tired of staring at a plywood box every night. In the 1870s, the president of the Western Union Bank was offered the patent to the telephone, which he quickly dismissed as a toy, asking why any person would ever want to use one when there's the option of a perfectly good telegraph on offer. It then put me onto an article which contained a load of very specific predictions that did come true. So you might have heard of a few of these. Films such as 2001 A Space Odyssey, which came out in the 1960s, that talk about and show something eerily similar to the iPad. Or you might be thinking of Jules Verne writing in the 1860s about two men walking on the moon. Men such as Nikola Tesla, Tesla in, the year, try that again, in the year 1909, talking about Wi-Fi and talking about mobile phones. And we have to say that all of these men and women making these predictions are at best well-informed guesses about what the future holds in store. There can't be any way for Verne or Tesla to have known with any complete certainty that these things were going to take place. Their predictions may show a degree of authority and may show a degree of precision in their particular field, but only one human being has ever explained what the future will look like because he knows for sure. Batman is Jesus. And that is exactly what he is doing in Mark chapter 13. See, in these verses that we read this evening, Jesus displays an authority and he displays a precision that only God could display as he stands sovereignly over time and history itself. These verses show his followers that he is the divine son of God, the creator of all things. But there's much, much more going on here in these verses. These are some of the last words that Jesus will share with his disciples before he goes to the cross. The words that they will need to hear in order to be ready and to respond to what is coming their way. 
This isn't just a display of divine power from Jesus, but also a carefully crafted explanation to the disciples, to all of his followers, to equip them for what comes next. There are two big moments that Jesus touches on in these verses. You'll see them listed on the screen uh, to my left. The first event that Jesus explains is the destruction of the temple. He says to his disciples, be ready, the temple is coming down. We've been listening to Jesus speak in the temple courts with a clear and an unmatched authority as we've spent time in Mark's gospel over these past few weeks. We've been listening in to Jesus speaking to religious leaders of all shapes and sizes, and the crowds hear him gladly as he teaches correctly. The crowds hear him gladly as he refutes what the authorities teach and have been teaching. We've seen the corruption of those who run the temple, the corruption of those who should teach the law of the Lord faithfully, who should teach the law of the Lord clearly, but instead further their own gains, financial, social. And now Jesus, in verse 1 of chapter 13 of Mark, walks out of the temple walks away from the teachers, walks away from the authorities, walks away from those that have well and truly walked away from him. And as Jesus leaves the temple with his disciples, one of them, again in verse 1, says to Jesus, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And we're not sure who this particular disciple is, but he would have been absolutely right In its day, this building, the temple, the courts, would have been a wonder of the world. I know this structure isn't necessarily everyone's cup of tea, but the first time I stood under La Sagrada Familia in Barcelona, I remember being completely bowled over by the scale, by the beauty of the building. And I could have stood there for hours and hours, just looking at every single angle, every single component part of the outside of the building, never mind going inside to see what was in there. I think we sat nearby waiting to go in, and we didn't really say much to one another because our eyes were fixed firmly on the building. So much to take in. Now, I think I'd have been bowled even further over, even further bowled over, by the temple as the disciples would have seen it in Jesus' day. So some of you might remember Jonathan a few weeks ago helping us to understand something of the scale of this place. The entire complex would have covered around 35, 36 acres. Some of the biggest blocks in the temple would have been roughly the same size as those white letters that you see on the Hollywood sign. It would have been covered in the most beautiful stones, the most beautiful materials. It would have been such an impressive sight for all to see. So imagine the reaction of the disciples when they hear Jesus in verse 2. Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now there have been dozens of examples in history of hugely significant monuments that have been destroyed, leaving people feeling bereft, uncertain as to what the future holds. We might think of attacks made by Russian forces on historical monuments in Ukraine. We might think of New York in the year 2001. Devastation that would have been previously unthinkable, unfathomable. 
that left people bereft, confused, lost. Jesus is telling his disciples that this very temple that they sit across from, this very temple is coming down and the scale will be devastating. There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now, were that to happen for a faithful Jew, for a disciple who follows the laws of the Lord, it would have meant ruin. It would have meant ruin for God's people and ruin for God's witness to the surrounding nations. The temple was supposed to function as the place where God's people could commune with God through the work of the priests, where God's law was taught, where their sins could be atoned for, where they could gather together. What would it mean for God's people if these things were to be dismantled and destroyed? And so as they sit on the Mount of Olives, which is directly opposite the temple, looking up at this huge structure, after what I imagine would have been a fairly contemplative silence, Peter, James, John, and Andrew then ask Jesus privately in verse 4, tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Now, initially, as we read it earlier on, it sounds like Jesus doesn't answer their question, not directly at least. But the answer he gives is the one that they need to hear given what is about to happen. See, Jesus says to them, verse 14, there will be a day coming when the abomination of desolation is standing where it ought not to be. And as Jesus explains what's happening here, he's borrowing language from the Old Testament book of Daniel, a book which forecasts the judgment and the salvation that the future holds for the people of God. Both Daniel and Jesus speak of the abomination of desolation, a moment where the temple will be laid bare, scarred by the actions of invaders. They're speaking of the invading Roman armies who would arrive within the lifetime of some of Jesus' followers. And so if we fast forward 40 or so years to 70 AD, when the Roman general Titus would besiege and invade Jerusalem to stop our Jewish revolt against Rome, his armies would enter the temple, destroy the building, carry off the artifacts to Rome. And historians tell us that in Rome, Titus would take all of the elements of the temple, all of these things symbolically held so dearly by God's people, Items that until that point had only ever been seen by the high priest and parade them through the streets of Rome. He and his armies desolate the temple, an abomination in the eyes of the Lord and his people. But these events might not be such a surprise for the disciples when we remember what Jesus had previously said about the temple. So we said earlier that the function of the temple was to teach God's word clearly, was to offer atonement for sins, and to invite the nations to come and worship the true God of Israel. But that hasn't been happening for quite some time now. We might remember in chapter 11 that Jesus finds no fruit on the fig tree outside the temple, meaning that he finds no fruit inside the temple. Nobody doing the work of the Lord. And so Jesus says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. 
We might remember Jesus clearing out the temple, crying, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. See, the temple is coming down, a devastating moment for God's people, but it's not one that is outside of his control. Throughout history, God would often have used another nation as an instrument of his justice and his judgment against God's people. And so as we listen to Jesus' assessment of the temple, what should be going on there, but what is not going on there, and what is going on there instead, it might be less and less of a surprise to us that God is stirring Rome to bring it down, to close the curtain on its corruption, to silence the godless religion that is taught within. The foretold destruction of the temple is the darkest day in the history of God's people. Jesus describes it in verse 19 as such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation and never will be. A moment in history where God's judgment falls on those who deliberately, persistently distort his name, mislead his people. So how are God's people to respond? Well, look with me again at verse 14. Jesus says, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Jesus says to his people, go, get out. Don't go back to your house to take anything out. Let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. Pray for those who are pregnant Verse 17, and those who are nursing infants, pray that it might not happen during the winter. Jesus says to his followers, escape the coming judgment on the corrupt temple. And historians will tell us that hundreds of thousands of Jews would die during the Roman invasion, almost a million. But when the Christians in Jerusalem saw the Roman standards coming over the horizon, when they saw the eagle of the Roman armies. They heeded Jesus' warning and they fled. They survived the judgment on corrupt religion because they listened to the words of their savior king. And I suspect it would be tempting for a believer to see this moment that Jesus describes as the end for his disciples to see this as the moment where God had truly abandoned his people, or for he had finally been outmuscled by the might of Rome. But in reality, these verses show us that Jesus' hand was as firmly on the steering wheel of history as his hand always has been and as his hand always will be. Even as the centurions pull every single temple stone off the other, Jesus was not caught off guard by what happened. As the centurions pulled every single temple stone off the other, Jesus was causing these things to take place so that his purposes might be fulfilled. Nothing that he allows to happen would undo his salvation plan to gather his people from the nations. And these moments in history, the things we see on our screens, hopeless moments in our lives when it's easy to feel like God's purposes lie in rubble, Let's remember that nothing has happened without his knowledge, 
Nothing has happened without his permission. Jesus' patience with the forces that twist and distort his message. Jesus' patience with the forces that mislead his people will not endure forever. It came down in the year 70 AD in the form of the temple. And his people are not to be surprised when this happens, but are to remember Jesus' words that it would be like this and to be ready instead. See, those who twist his words are given plenty of airtime in our world. And our patient God shows his mercy every single day in restraining his hand. But let's never confuse his mercy and patience for their victory. Jesus has looked at the corruption and the lies of the temple and has said, enough. And he will one day look at the corruption and the lies of our own world and also, again, say, enough. Which leads us on to the second thing for us to see this evening. In these days, God's people, the church, will be under immense pressure and are to be on guard. If you glance down with me at verse 13, we read that Jesus' purpose in sharing all of these things is to endure to the end and be saved. That's his goal, that's his purpose as he shares these words with us. And after the temple is destroyed, in that state of uncertainty, it's easy, I think, to imagine the aftermath of the crumbled ruins of the temple causing some of Jesus' followers to wobble. And anticipating that this will be the case, Jesus is kind enough and powerful enough to explain to them and to us exactly what these days are going to look like. Jesus doesn't pull his punches in what he says, but there is not a hint of anxiety or fear in his tone. He wants to give his people, he wants to give his church realistic expectations going forwards so that they are not shaken, so that they are not alarmed or worried by what they see and by what they encounter. So there's four things in these verses that Jesus guards his people against. Let me point them out for us in turn. The first in verse six is false teachers claiming Christ-like authority. False teachers claiming Christ-like authority. So verse six, many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. It's a warning that Jesus repeats again in verse 22. He says, false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. See, as Jesus rises from the dead and ascends to the Father's side, as he will soon do, there will be those who claim to represent God as prophets, who claim to speak God's word as Christ's. And Jesus warns his people that all they will do is lead you astray. The false teaching of the temple may have come to an end, but sadly, false teaching will linger on for a little while longer. And in moments of grief, such as the collapse of the temple, their teaching might sound very tempting. But all it will do is lead people away from the gospel away from the true words of Christ. And even the true elect people of God are to be wary of their words. 
That's the first thing. The second is the destruction of the world in which we live. God's vision for the new creation is a world of harmony between humanity, harmony between humanity and our creator. But before then, verse 7 and 8 of chapter 13, Jesus says these words, When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. The war that the people in Jesus' day will see Rome declare on Jerusalem, that will not be the last war that will take place. God's people will not yet have peace from the nations. There will be further clashes, further violence, further bloodshed. And Jesus says, be ready, be on guard. The third thing is external opposition in verse 9. Jesus says to his people, they will deliver you over to councils. You will be beaten in synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. God's people will be placed in front of very, very powerful looking individuals, very powerful looking panels, very powerful men and women, and they will be asked to explain why they believe what they believe, why they said what they said, why they refused to bow the knee to the decrees and demands of the world. And that will be a frightening moment, a violent moment for his followers, where they're asked to make a very, very costly choice between the world in which they live and the world that is to come. A choice between the rulers of this age and the sovereign God of every age. That's the third thing. And the fourth thing is internal opposition from within the family. Verse 12 and 13. Jesus says, brother will deliver brother over to death. The father his child. Children will rise against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. Not only will opposition arise from outside the church, outside the home, but sadly it will arise from inside the home as well. The gospel will leave homes at odds with one another, children aggressively refusing to believe what their parents taught them to believe, siblings scorning one another for their faith in Jesus. And he says, because we bear his name, because we bear the name of Christ, a name which the world would nail to the cross, so it would seek to silence those who bear the same name. We are hated as he is hated. And Jesus tells us exactly how we are to respond to these moments. Verse 5, he says, See that no one leads you astray. Verse 7, he says, do not be alarmed. Verse 9, he says, be on your guard. And then again in verse 23, be on guard. It's right that we are deeply saddened, deeply troubled by what we see happening in the world. Forces conspiring against the true community of believers from outside and from inside our lives. A newsfeed that seems to get darker every single day. Believing friends of ours that flirt more and more with dangerous teaching on who Jesus is and what the gospel is. Jesus says, expect these days, be on guard, be ready, 
but that these days are fully known to him, fully within his grasp, and that they will one day come to an end. And in the meantime, we are to cling onto him as he clings onto us. See, as we close in response to all of this that we've read and studied this evening, all of these sobering words, the sobering reality that faces God's people, our response is not to dig trenches. Our response is not to build a bunker. Our response is, verse 9, to bear witness to him. And, verse 10, to share the gospel, proclaim the gospel to all nations. We are to be unfazed, unashamed in what we know to be true, even when our horizons, our homes, and our hearts are filled with derision, division, and doubt. See, if Jesus lies defeated by Rome, defeated by corrupt religion, defeated by the forces that oppose him, there is absolutely no reason for any of us to share Jesus with one another. There is absolutely no reason for us to share Jesus with the nations. But the reason why we continue to bear witness to Jesus, why we continue to preach the gospel to all nations, is because he has demonstrated his divinity in telling us exactly what will happen and in promising us that he will one day bring it to an end. That which we experience now, verse 8, is the beginning of the birth pains. It's the beginning of the birthing process of the new world that is to come. See, Jesus' words in these verses are a perfect, sovereign description, somehow more accurate as the weeks go by, of the world in which we live. And I'm sadder every day as I watch Jesus' words unfold into the reality of our world. But I'm more confident every single day that he is sovereign over every single event. See, it stands to reason that if there was a moment when Jesus looked at the temple and said, no more, and that is exactly what happened, I can have a confidence that there will be a moment when Jesus looks at history, looks at our world, and says, no more. And he will return to make all things new. If one has happened exactly as he said it would, so will the other. See, the reason why we continue to bear witness to Jesus, why we continue to preach the gospel to all nations, even in these circumstances, is because we know that he will blaze back into our world as the true prophet, the true Christ. He will bring every war and disaster to peace and prosperity. He will judge those who stood against him and who persecuted, chased, and oppressed his people and he will unite all of his people in him and under his rule forever. So to his disciples 2,000 years ago, and to us sitting here this evening, Jesus would say, in this world in which you live, a world in which I am in sovereign control, do not be alarmed, be on your guard, and tell everyone about me. Tell everyone about the Jesus, the powerful Jesus who will return one day, who offers us genuine hope of forgiveness and salvation from this world into the world to come.
Let me pray for us and ask Jesus for his help by his spirit for us to endure and to trust in him and to continue to do so until he returns or calls us to be with him. Father, we ask that by the power of your spirit, you would help us to be ready. You would help us not to be alarmed, but instead you would help us to be on guard. Father, please stop us from listening to anyone who would lead us astray. Help us instead to cling on to these eternal words of Jesus, words which prove their power and their authority and their accuracy time and time again. Thank you for his kind warning to us. Thank you that he sets out realistic expectations for us. Help us to cling to him as he clings and holds us close to to him. All these things, Father, we pray and ask for your glory and so that many will be saved. In Jesus' name, amen.